The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Today, expert knowledge is so highly valued that we learn to lead first as the expert whose mastery of the details helps teams solve problems. Eventually, as your leadership role expands, expert leaders find themselves in a role where others know more. Details are no longer so accessible, and decisions are made without a full understanding. Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone with Dr. Wanda Wallace. It's time to find out how to make the transformation smooth and flawless. Now, here is Dr. Wanda Wallace. Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. I'm your host, Wanda Wallace. With me today is Henry Mintzberg. We've been doing a series on what it means to be strategic, and Henry is a Cleghorn Professor of Management at McGill University, the author of over 16 books and 160 articles. Probably more importantly, Henry has spent his life devoted to understanding the work of real of managers in general, trying to understand the often messy formation of strategy, and also trying to shed light on different forms of organizing. So, Henry, welcome to the show. Thank you, Wanda. Happy to be here. Glad to have you. Looking forward to this one. Um, I want to start with an argument you have been making or a notion that you have put out lately around community ship. And I know that you have said that you have a distinct view about leadership and that we've really gotten the emphasis wrong on leadership. So what do you mean to buy, buy community ship and why does this matter? Well, you know, uh, there's nothing wrong with leadership. and We need leadership and we all recognize that. <clears throat> when it becomes obsessive, it becomes a problem, and, and the problem is twofold, I think. The, the, the main problem is that if you say leader, you mean one individual. No matter how much that individual is motivating others or empowering them or all these grand words, leadership focuses on the single individual. But organizations are collective activities. They work with people cooperating and working together. And so I think we need to put the focus not on leadership, but on what I call community ship. I just coined the word to go along with leadership or citizenship and, you know, all these other things. And, and we, need, we need a focus on community ship and leadership in the service of community ship. So what would that mean, a leader? Well, let me back up. I was having a conversation today, in fact, with one of my clients, and we were talking about some incredibly high-performing individuals, very, very talented and delightful people in many ways, but who get so focused on their own delivery, their own execution, that they forget about the larger totality of the organization. And is that what you mean, that the emphasis is too much on the individual? Yeah, that's a big part of it. Look, America has always been an individualistic society. That was its great strength. America adores its entrepreneurs and its great leaders and its heroes and all those people, which every country needs. But, but that can be taken much too far. And in the U.S., I think right now, it's much too far. And, and what we're getting in, in significant positions of power, particularly in corporations, are narcissists, not real leaders, but narcissists. Um, we, you know, a real leader says, 
don't pay me so much because it sends the wrong signal to my people. It's sending a signal to my people that I'm 400 times more important than they are because I'm getting 400 times their salaries. And if I was a real leader, I would not accept that salary scale. Look, I got, you know, any, any leader like that has more than enough money to spend. They don't even have the time to spend it. Um, and it just sends out a totally wrong signal. All right, so if we shift from the focus on the individual and the individual as the salvation in ways of the organization and no individual is four times more, 400 times more important than anybody else, we shift the focus to more of the collective. What does that mean more about what the leader is doing then on a day-to-day basis? Well, for one thing, he or she is getting out of the office, on the ground, seeing what's going on, being involved with things, understanding things, um, being a part of things. You know, there's a company in Japan became famous, Kao, Kao I think they pronounce it, it, it sort of cosmetics and things. They became famous for holding all their meetings in open spaces, and anybody could join any meeting. So if a worker walked by a meeting of the executive committee of the whole company, that worker could sit down at the meeting. If the president walked by a meeting in the factory, the president could sit down at that meeting. <laughs> That's kind of the spirit of community ship. All right, so we have you have an example of a company in Japan. Any other examples of companies that have really shifted this focus to community ship? You know what? Look at the list of most admired companies, any list. You know, Fortune does it, I guess. I don't know if they still do it. But, but uh, you know, look at any list of the most admired companies. And, and I think you'll see two, type, two types. Either you'll see entrepreneurial cases where it truly is one unbelievable individual like Apple with, with Steve Jobs. Or in most cases for established companies, you'll see a strong sense of community in that place. People feel they belong, they feel they're respected, and so on and so forth. Any admired company, any company that we think highly of, almost anyone, uh, except, as I say, for startup you know, or, or, or entrepreneurs where the founder is still there and maybe powerful individual, um, fits that bill. So this notion then of if we get the focus on the community ship, it's not the leader is out in among the people listening, understanding, not focused on him or herself, and people feel valued, so they feel they're a part of it. Yeah, yeah. Let me let me give you a, fa- a favorite example. IKEA, the probably the greatest furniture chain there is, um, is known for its uh, you know selling unassembled furniture so you can put it in your car and take it home. So you sort of say, now, where did this wonderful strategic idea came from? You sort of imagine a bunch of executives sitting in a strategic planning meeting saying, why don't we sell unassembled furniture? But that's not the way it happened. A worker, um, a worker tried to get a table in his car, and it didn't fit, so he took the legs off. And somebody, I don't know if it's the worker or somebody else, doesn't say on the story on the website, but... But, but somebody got the idea, though, hey, wait a minute, um, you know, if we have to take the legs off, maybe they do too. Now, that didn't go anywhere until it reached senior management where there was an entrepreneur or someone else who was a sufficient leader to say, brilliant, terrific, we're going to go with that. So it's not, a la- it's not a lack of leadership, but a lot of these ideas come from the ground. And a healthy organization consists of workers who try things and say, hey, you know, we could change this company. You know, we've forgotten about it, but Japan used to do a lot of that Kaizen and 
total quality management, and so on, where, where, where the workers were very involved in making changes and suggesting changes. People love to be involved. They love to feel they're part of it. And what we do these days is pay, pay a lot of people minimally. We fire massively when the executive doesn't get his or her bonus, uh, meaning they didn't make their numbers. Uh, and, uh, and we kill the absolute sense of community. How can you feel you belong to a company and respect it when you see all your colleagues around you being fired because the chief executive didn't make, uh, didn't make his or her bonuses? All right, so a community, a good community, a healthy organization is a strong community. People feel that they're a part of that community. They feel that they're valued. They feel that they're involved. And I think you also are implying that they feel that they're listened to. So that means that the role of the leader is to be, in effect, among the people to listen, to approve good ideas or sanction good ideas. Anything else the leader needs to be doing? Well, there's lots of things leaders need to be doing. Often they have to consolidate ideas into some kind of central vision. But as I say, these ideas don't pop out of thin air. They tend to come from a healthy dialogue within the organization, which means that, that uh, good chief executives or good managers in general are great listeners. They're, they're, they're more adept at listening than necessarily at talking um, because they hear things, they pick things up, and people know they're being listened to, and therefore they have the courage to say what needs to be said, you know. You know, a lot of our vocabulary is killing us. This whole idea of being a human resource, step back, step back and think about that. I'm not a human resource. I'm a human being. A human resource is like another resource, like metal or like, uh, you know, like facilities or things, you know. If you don't need a resource, you get rid of it. If you don't need a human resource, you get rid of it. You know, and then they call us human capital. It's even worse and human assets, this whole economic vocabulary is horrible. Um, and, and it's not very difficult to get a sense of respect. All the people who are leading the organization have to do is say, how do I feel respected? What makes me feel respected? Great. I love that. It's that I love this notion. You're re- right. Our vocabulary does not help us. Human resource, human capital, human assets. You feel like furniture that you could move around. And in many ways, some of what we do does treat people like furniture. Um, and I do. I agree with you, Henry, in that often all I hear from people within the organization is I want to be respected by my manager. And that isn't a difficult process. Just think about how you'd like to be respected. Yeah. Okay. We're, go ahead. Uh, uh, yeah, yeah, no, no, absolutely. Uh, you know, we could use that metaphor, the furniture, to say that uh, that too many companies were being disassembled, just like the furniture is uh, disassembled. You know, I, I do a weekly blog. I call it a twog, and uh, and I did one about um, about this kind of leadership, and it was the most successful by far. The idea of 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 this kind of narcissistic leadership and why we have so much of it and why we put people into senior positions who are so often kiss up and kick down kind of people you know the short answer is that the boards who choose them don't have a clue how their management is received all they know is they're impressive they deal with the board they they speak well and so on but they don't have a clue about how they listen whether people respect them whether they get in the company whether they know what's going on it's awful. It's really awful. 
All right. We're going to take a break. Um, we've, I've been talking with Henry Mintzberg, and we've been talking about the notion of shifting from the focus on the individual as the salvation for the organization and instead focusing on the community, creating the community, developing the community, being part of. When we come back, I want to talk about what that means in terms of strategy. So we'll be right back. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. If you want more information on the coaching and seminars we offer, go to our website at www.leadershipforuminc.com. If you are interested in finding out more, you can also purchase a copy of the forthcoming book or any of Dr. Wallace's current books by clicking on the links under the resources tab on our website at www.leadershipforuminc.com. You're also sure to find some handy links, videos, and more to help you create a winning strategy for your organization. Leadership Forum, Inc., helping organizations get it and keep it. Are you an entrepreneur that wants to achieve more, not just in it for profit, but to do work you find meaningful that adds more value to more people in more ways? Listen for Be More, Achieve More, inspiration for the entrepreneurial mind. With host Chris Cooper, you'll hear from successful achievers from around the world with the passion and experience to offer invaluable guidance. These people are making a difference and will help give you the motivation and insight to achieve more. Be More, Achieve More can be heard live Fridays at 8 a.m. U.S. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Out of the Comfort Zone. To reach Dr. Wanda Wallace or her guest, call into the program at 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to wanda.wallace at leadershipforuminc.com. Now, back to Out of the Comfort Zone. Welcome back. I'm your host, Wanda Wallace. With me today is Henry Mintzberg, who's a professor at McGill University. Um, Henry's life's work has been around the work of managers, the formation of strategy, and different forms of organizing. We were just talking about Henry's latest notion that we've gotten too much emphasis on the leader as the individual and need to have a greater emphasis on the community, a thing he calls community-ship. Um, and what I want to do now is to shift Henry and spend a bit more time talking about what it means being strategic, particularly in this light of community ship. So you've written a lot about strategy and particularly have often said that strategy is understood after the fact, not necessarily in the formation along the way. So what makes for great strategic work in your opinion? Well, you know, we learn our way to strategies. Um, we don't plan our way to strategies. Planning implies that you sit in the abstract and, and sort of concoct the whole thing. And, and even when you do sit and sit sort of generally, what you're doing is really consolidating a lot of learning, and maybe that's the moment when it comes together. But strategy is fundamentally a learning process. You know, if you look at companies when they, when they diversify, for example, they almost always get it wrong at the beginning. Um, they pick the wrong companies or the wrong things because they don't really know how their strengths are going to match with the strengths or weaknesses of the other company. Um, 
and, and they eventually learn their way into what works. And that's true of almost all strategies. Uh, so it, it's not a question of the brilliant strategist. And when you do have a brilliant strategist like Steve Jobs, um, he too learns his way to his strategy. They didn't just all pop out at once. He went through, he went through his, uh, his initial uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, desktops and he went through uh, his thing with Scully where he got fired out of his own company and so on. He learned his way to what works. And, and we all do. It's um, so much has been written about Steve Jobs and so much talked about his style of leading and all sorts of things. But I think you're right. A lot of people forget the early days, some of the major mistakes that he made along the way. Okay, so so strategy then is really about learning. Um, so how can we be more strategic? Well, you, you become more strategic by getting on the ground and finding out what's going on. We studied a supermarket chain in Montreal that was very, very successful, and the chief executive used to go shopping every Saturday morning in his own stores um, and, and used to buy and act like a customer and see how he felt and see what he got. I mean, you've got to do things like that. It's not like a General Motors executive visiting, visiting a factory where they've you know, polished it up for three weeks uh, knowing she's coming or so. I don't know if it happens today, but it used to happen, you know, that knowing that person is coming. People should be able to drop in freely, see what's going on, look around, uh, and learn for themselves, especially in retailing. You know, if you've got 500 stores, um, that may be a lot of stores, but what you've really got, possibly, uh, in something like McDonald's, is you've got 500 stores, rep- one store repeated 500 times. Um, and so get into a store, get into five stores, get into ten stores, find out what's going on. Buy your own products, use your own products. You know, I, I have this fantasy of uh, working for a, soft, for, for a juice company um, and saying, you know, let's have some juice. And they bring the juice out and I happen to know that the, that the package is completely unopenable. Um, because I've bought it at home and I can't get the bloody thing off without, a, you know, without a pliers, and uh, and saying to the chief executive, here, here, you open it, um, and 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 him being shocked, like, oh my God! I said, well, aren't you using your own product? I went to a Walmart store a little while ago, and it was five o'clock on a Wednesday. That's not a busy time. The merchandise was strewn everywhere, and you know what? The light in the front of the store wasn't working. Half the letters were out. Now, if we brought in the chief executive of the whole company, he'd probably fire the store manager, the Quebec manager, God knows who. He should fire himself um, because he's leading a company that's doing stuff like that. I love this notion of getting on the ground, um, literally trying to open your own package. Haven't we all been there on a number of occasions? All right, so let's get this a little more tactical, Henry. So if I'm not the chief exec, but I'm an average manager inside the company looking to do the right thing, and I want to be more strategic, what's your advice for me as a middle, upper, middle level manager? That's easy. Find a company with a chief executive who wants to do the right thing. <laughs> Change companies. Because you can't do much to, you know, I have a friend who's going through hell because of these horrible managers they stuck over him and and you know and he complains bitterly about it um and the only solution you know he can't change how people are chosen because they don't give employees even fairly senior managers a say in 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 how more senior managers are chosen whereas 
they may be the best ones. You know, if you really want to find out how somebody manages, don't ask a board member, don't ask an outsider. You have to, there's only, you know, we have to pick our managers for their faults as much as their strengths, and we have to make sure their faults are not going to be fatal under the circumstances. So how do you find out somebody's faults? There's only two ways, to my mind. Either you marry them or you work for them. Um, now, you can't ask the spouses because they're biased, and you can't ask the ex-spouses because they're even more biased. Um, so you have to ask the people who work for them, and they should have a say. Yeah, I'm not saying we elect managers, but they should have a say uh, so that the people who don't know the consequences of the candidate's management experience can speak up. So are you um, implying then, Henry, that strategy, back to the topic of strategy, I agree with you that we pick our managers as much for the faults as for their strengths, but are you implying that strategy is really ultimately decided at the top of the organization, or do you think it actually happens in the middle of the organization? Or the bottom. Or the or the bottom. bottom. The, the, the IKEA example, it started at the bottom. It started with a guy, a worker, simply trying to put a table in a car, in a, in a truck. Not a car, I think it was. So, so it can start anywhere, anybody, including a chief executive. I mean, the chief executive could, could get the ideas. Often you have these wonderful stories of, of uh, there used to be a company called Tensor, and this guy invented the hairless tennis ball and the tensor lamp and all that. He invented the lamp because his wife wanted to sleep at night and, and he kept her up with the lights on. So he invented the lamp so that it could focus on him. He invented the tennis ball because he wanted to play tennis. So it can come from a chief executive and an entrepreneur. It can come from middle managers. You know what? It can come from anybody who cares and is in touch with what the company is doing. Um, and, and what the company is doing could be drilling oil wells or, you know, building tennis courts or anything else. Okay, so from anyone anywhere who's in touch with what the company is doing and then presumably who's aware of how that product is working on the ground in reality, product or service. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, the trouble with most management education is it's built around cases where kids who've never managed at Harvard, anywhere else, many of whom have never managed at all, are reading 20 or 10-page cases and pronouncing on what the company should do. What an awful way, what an awful way to train managers as if they can shoot their mouths off about things they know nothing about. Um, you know, we've tried to build management development programs where, uh, where uh, we take people who are managers and let them share their experience and learn from each other. That's how you get there. Okay. All right, so then I'm going to come back to this whole notion about being strategic just for one last time. It's about getting on the ground and learning. It's about focusing on what is really happening in your stores, in your services, with your products, how easy it is to open the bottle, is the store a mess, kind of getting down to the tactics of what your customers experience with you. And that that strategy can come from anywhere within the organization. Anybody can have an idea. That's step one. Step two okay. is seeing the consequences of the idea. So it might not necessarily have been that worker who saw the consequences of taking those legs off the table. It might have been a manager nearby. It might have been anyone. Um, but the second step is seeing the consequences of that idea, seeing the big, because, you know, you can't get the table in the car, take off the legs. Sure, it's done with it. But then somebody sees the big consequences of a very little idea. You know, Fleming, who came up with penicillin, saw the huge consequences of the fact that, that the mold was killing bacteria in his samples. 
and 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 he found other people had gotten rid of samples because the same thing was happening. But in his case, he kind of stepped back and said, "Well, wait a minute. If mold is killing the bacteria, maybe we can use mold to kill bacteria in the human body." And that's where he got penicillin and antibiotics. So it's the it's the seeing the big consequences of a simple little act, and that's not genius necessarily or massive creativity. You know, it's not the Einstein creativity or Tchaikovsky writing the violin concerto. It's just something happens, say, hey, wait a minute, we can switch that. We can see the reverse of that. Um, you know, can't get the legs on the table? Hey, wait a minute, maybe they can't. Maybe our customers can't too, so let's sell our products differently. All right, and is there a step three? So one is being on the ground, observing what's happening. Two is seeing the big consequences. Is there anything after that? Yeah, step three. You know how long it took IKEA, once they had that idea, to bring it to fruition? Fifteen years. No. Fifteen, 15, years. Years. 15 okay. years. Count all of it. In other words, think of what they had to do. Good idea. We'll sell, them, uh, we'll sell them unassembled furniture. Think of all the packaging. Think of how they had to work through the instructions to give people. Think of even inventing these funny little screws and, and giving you little, little screwdrivers and things to, to assemble it. Think of how they had to get it sourced and how they had to work out new packaging and uh, huge the the uh, the uh, their catalogs. Uh, think of all that. It's huge, huge. It wasn't once they had it. It wasn't like good. Now we can just rest and you know and cash checks. All right. So it's being on the ground, seeing what's really happening um, from a customer's point of view. Two is seeing the consequences of an idea from the customer's point of view, and then three, the big part is working out how to actually really do it. And as you said, in Ikea's case, 15 years. Yeah, I would just reword the middle one. It's, it's yep. not seeing the consequences of an idea. It's seeing the consequences of a happening, of an event. That becomes the idea. Okay, in other of words, an event. Yep. In other words, creating an idea out of an event. Can't get, the, can't get the table in the car. Hey, wait a minute. That's the idea. Okay. The idea is the consequences of having had to put that, to take those legs off the table. Okay, so I, it, all of this sort of ties together to me in my mind, Henry, is this notion of that we put a much more focus on the community and a little less on the leader, and the leader is the savior or the leader is the key strategist, the brilliant single person with a grand idea. And instead, we're looking at anybody anywhere within the organization who can get on the ground, see what's happening, have an idea or an observe an event. And then we need people who can see the consequences of that event and turn it into something else. And then we need a whole lot of people working out what to do about it. And that is the essence of strategy, learning our way into the strategy, not planning our way. Um, so you get the sense that the entire community is participating in the strategy formation. Yeah, or a lot of it, yeah. Okay, fabulous. All right, we're going to take a break. When we come back, I want to talk about what this means for developing leaders. And Henry's already precluded some ideas about what he thinks needs to happen, but we're going to go for it in detail and how you can go about developing greater leaders, managers within this notion of community. We'll be right back. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. 
If you want more information on the coaching and seminars we offer, go to our website at www.leadershipforuminc.com. If you are interested in finding out more, you can also purchase a copy of the forthcoming book or any of Dr. Wallace's current books by clicking on the links under the resources tab on our website at www.leadershipforuminc.com. You're also sure to find some handy links, videos, and more to help you create a winning strategy for your organization. Leadership Forum, Inc., helping organizations get it and keep it. Dialogue is the single most powerful leadership tool we have to make a difference in the world. Leading conversations with host Cheryl Esposito creates a place for that dialogue. Tune into the Voice America Business Channel every Friday as Cheryl hosts new conversations among leaders from around the world in business, government, art, economics, and social change. We'll explore big ideas and everyday actions and learn how their own leadership has led them to discover a newfound sense of possibility in the world. Leading conversations with Cheryl Esposito, bringing big thinkers together in conversations that make a difference right here on the Voice America Business Channel every Friday morning at 10 a.m. Pacific Standard Time. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Out of the Comfort Zone. To reach Dr. Wanda Wallace or her guest, call into the program at 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to wanda.wallace at leadershipforuminc.com. Now, back to Out of the Comfort Zone. Welcome back. With me today is Henry Mintzberg. Um, Henry is a professor of management at McGill who's devoted his life, work, and thinking around the work of managers, the often messy formation of strategy, and different forms of organizing. We've been talking about Henry's notion that we should focus more on the community rather than on the individual leader, that the work of the leader is developing and nurturing that community. And we've also been talking about how strategy actually really gets formed, the notion that anybody can participate in strategy, and it's really a threefold process. One is being on the ground in a real moment with customers and having an observation of an event. Two is seeing the big consequences of that particular event and understanding what could be done about it. And then three is the messy work of figuring out how to make that happen. All right, so if the focus then, Henry, is on developing the community, making people feel that they belong, that they're valued, that they're part of something, that the leader's job is to respect people, to build that community, and to listen to the various ideas and events that come up from the bottom of the organization, you have this notion that we've been developing leaders in the wrong way. So what's your view about how we do develop leaders? should develop leaders? Well, number one is we can't create a leader or a manager in a classroom. I don't think you can create a leader under any circumstances. People are born. It's, it's how they're, it's the experience they have in life and in management that makes them leaders. Um, we don't do that in a classroom. But, but you can't create a manager in a classroom. A bunch of case studies or a lot of theory or a lot of analysis uh, just distorts because management is not a profession. It's not a science. It's a practice. It's art and it's craft, and, and those things are learned on the job. But what we've been doing is taking people who are managers and bringing them into a very different kind of classroom. So they come in at round tables in a flat room, um, and they share experiences with each other. We have a 
kind of 50-50 rule that says half the time it's over to the managers on their agendas. And we even do things like friendly consulting where they bring in their problems and have their colleagues work on those problems with them. And they absolutely love this stuff because it's all focused on real problems. And, and the problem that one has, the other says, you know, I've got the same problem or I can see my problem in light of yours. And, and it becomes just very, very powerful, powerful kind of stuff. So we've been doing this for 20 years in a program called the International Masters in Practicing Management, uh, IMPM. Dot org and uh, and and managers absolutely love it. The people in the classroom um, just love the opportunity. You know, it's a little bit like Andy Warhol with his 15 minutes of fame. What you get in our program is 50% of the time is about your your concerns and your colleagues' concerns. But you're learning as much or more from their concerns as you are from yours. And 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 we shut up half the time. You know. Uh, in my own work, I find that that sharing of problems is enormously useful. I, I do a crazy thing in terms of coaching. I will often coach three people at the same time in a single event. And the reason is you can understand the issue that somebody else is dealing with so much better when it's not your own. You and know, so Wanda, listening, yeah. Yeah, I was going to say, Wanda, it's, it's interesting you say that because we create a little company called coachingourselves.com, and, and, and that's exactly what it does. It, it brings, we don't have facilitators in there, but we have teams of five, might be a manager with his or her own team, or it might be just a group of peers, but they download topics on all kinds of things, including some we talked about today, like strategy and so on, and, and sort of learning strategy, and they kind of read the material and spend about an hour sharing that with each other and discussing how they can use those ideas together to make their companies and their jobs uh, more effective. Um, so we're, we're doing coaching, too, and it's very much very close to what you're saying. You put three or four people together. We, we typically have about five, and, uh, and it's amazing how effective it works. That, too, is very popular. All right, so let me test an idea with you. Um, so ages ago, Center for Creative Leadership and others have verified this data. We often say that 70% of what you learn, you learn on the job. Um, 20% you learn from a manager, typically a manager that wasn't a very good one, and 10% you learn in the classroom. Yeah. Um, and that would uh, correlate with your emphasis as well. I've always believed, though, that the 10% in the classroom should be 10% of reflection. Because if you don't stop to go back and look at the experiences of what you've learned and what it means and how they come together, you can often um, walk away with the wrong conclusions. Do you agree with me? You disagree with me? Oh, yeah. I mean, we've been making a lot of use of the 70-20-10 idea, um, uh, particularly in coaching ourselves. You know, what we're doing in our classrooms is... Is um, is we make the ten percent much higher because it builds on the seventy percent. Um, in other words, they're bringing in that experience they learn on the job, but we're making use of it. You know, people have said you don't have experiences; you have happenings. Happenings become experiences when you reflect on them and understand them. Um, and so, what we're doing in the classroom is getting to reflect and understanding them. Of course, in coaching ourselves, the ten percent there's no classroom, so we start to build on the seventy and the twenty and so on. And, and, uh, and, and use the experience right in the workplace. So, you, you know, you're working with a group all the time, and once every week or two you sit down with them for an hour and you 
step back and kind of discuss about strategy, about organizing. We have topics called Beyond Bullying. Uh, you know, we've got all kinds of stuff. And, um, and uh, so it's right in the context of the workplace. So if you're doing a topic called Beyond Bullying, you're talking about, you know, I did something the other day that I never should have done. And uh, What do you other guys think I should have done instead? How do you think I should have dealt with this? So the work experience and the reflective experience become all one. Powerful stuff. Now, so I take your point that this um, we need to do development from a point of reflecting on the experiences, discussing with each other, bringing the real problems, and sharing with our peers and colleagues what that's what we've tried, how else we could do it, and so forth. Are there particular agenda items that you think uh, we need to focus on, especially in this notion of developing communityship? Well, I, I, you know, I, I think we need to get rid of practices that are dysfunctional, like executive compensation, for example. It's, a, it's an ego trip for a single person, and it's very destructive. And as I say, it's not destructive just because they're getting paid so much. It's destructive because it sends out a signal saying, I'm so much more important than you are. How do you run a company? With, with that kind of an attitude. So, you know, the other thing is I think we have to take a very hard look at going public on stock markets. And more and more companies are starting to do that and say, it's not functional to be driven by these quarterly earnings where the chief executive as an individual is being assessed from, you know, every three months on how he or she is doing. It's very destructive, extremely destructive. And it's destructive of the very idea of community. You know, companies always, almost always build up as communities. They start with a lot of enthusiasm. You know, it's an entrepreneur, it's a new idea, everybody's fired up and all that. And then you get the IPO and suddenly they're on the stock market. Suddenly the focus is on the chief executive. Suddenly everybody's driven to perform. Uh, so everything looks better every three months. And you just kill it. You kill it all. And what did the companies do? Either they... Uh, Either it, it, it defeats them or more likely they, they become political. They start to build uh, monopolies and they start to manipulate, uh, you know, lobbying in the government and doing all kinds of things to make their numbers rather than just serving their customers. Often they're, they're tra- exploiting brands or trashing brands. You know, all kinds of games are being played because of this nonsense of quarterly reporting and, and just this idea that pressures of being, uh, being pushed by impatient investors. I certainly see an awful lot of startups where individuals, when the startups were incredibly dedicated, focused, excited, loved to be part of it, and they would describe it as a community. And as you run up to the IPO, all of that sense of community goes for a host of reasons. Um, and a lot of it has to do with the pressure of the reporting and the numbers and the who's getting what percentage stake and who's where and how. And it becomes an incredibly political environment. And at that moment, the community is faded away. Yep, absolutely. Absolutely. It's tragic. It's tragic, it's tra- you know, because, you know, think of how much more effective so many companies would be, you know, if, if not for this. Okay, fair enough. Okay, um... The, let me just return back to this notion of the um, programs that you have been running at McGill and this notion of sharing experiences from managers to each other or from people to each other. Um, it, do you have any great stories about one particular insight that has occurred? Um, in the program? 
Yeah. Um, yeah, I, yeah, I got a great story. We, we have a healthcare equivalent called the International Masters for Health Leadership, IMHL.org. Um, and we had a woman in our class who was an emergency room physician in a Montreal children's hospital. Um, and she had been volunteering for Doctors Without Borders for many years. Um, and she decided, based on the whole philosophy of the class, the sense of community, the sense of being on the ground, the sense of going on, that she, she decided that she wanted to run for the presidency of the organization worldwide. Um, and a, a number of members of the class volunteered to head up her campaign committee. Uh, so Joanne Liu is now the head of Doctors Without Borders in Geneva worldwide. But in this short space, she became the lead player worldwide on the Ebola crisis, and that's acknowledged by everybody who knows what's going on. She, Doctors Without Borders, had physicians on the ground knowing what was going on long before the World Health Organization, whose representatives were sitting in the capitals of these com- countries. Her people knew what was going on right away, but she realized that she couldn't um, sort of you know, ring the alarm bells as easily as the World Health Organization or the UN had to do it. So she set out to go meet the, the, the head of the WHO. She gave a talk to the Security Council of the UN. And, and, and the result is, has probably been the saving of millions and millions of lives. And that's just out of the philosophy of started on the ground. It started on the ground. And she saw the consequences of what could happen or the people in the organization, not just her, and um, and uh, um, changed uh, probably changed may have changed all our lives. That's fabulous. Um, and again, we come back to this whole notion of being on the ground, recognizing the consequences, and then making it happen. But in this case, making it happen is being very clever in how you mobilize people who can help solve the problem. We're going to take a break. With me today is Henry Mintzberg. We have been talking about the notion of community ship, strategy as being on the ground and recognizing consequences, and what it means to develop leaders. And when we come back, we'll finalize this conversation. So join us soon. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. If you want more information on the coaching and seminars we offer, go to our website at www.leadershipforuminc.com. If you are interested in finding out more, you can also purchase a copy of the forthcoming book or any of Dr. Wallace's current books by clicking on the links under the resources tab on our website at www.leadershipforuminc.com. You're also sure to find some handy links, videos, and more to help you create a winning strategy for your organization. Leadership Forum, Inc., helping organizations get it and keep it. Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. Plus, you get to take advantage of some great member benefits. Get unlimited access to millions of hours of on-demand content across all of our channels. Keep track of your favorite episodes, shows, and hosts in your own customizable library. Find out what shows you might be interested in based on your favorites. Plus, you get insider access with our newsletter. Membership gives you more. Sign up at voiceamerica.com and click register at the top right. The business community's first choice in Internet Talk Radio, Voice America Business Network.
You are listening to Out of the Comfort Zone. To reach Dr. Wanda Wallace or her guest, call into the program at 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to wanda.wallace at leadershipforuminc.com. Now, back to Out of the Comfort Zone. Welcome back. With me today is Henry Mintzberg from McGill University, and Henry's specialty is really in the formation of strategy, understanding the real work of managers, and in understanding how organizations should be, um, ways to form organizations. We've been talking about the notion of the importance of the community for any organization and maintaining that sense of community spirit, rather than putting the focus on the individual leader. We've also been talking about strategy formation as something that happens as a learning process rather than as in a sudden idea, and that um, strategy formation really starts with on-the-ground observation, then recognizing the consequences of that observation, then moving into how do we actually make that happen in a grand way. Um, So, Henry, I would be remiss in having this conversation with you if I didn't talk about your latest book, Rebalancing Society. So tell us the premise of the book. Well, the premise of the book is that we went off the rails, particularly in 1989. Um, That's the year the Berlin Wall fell. Um, And unfortunately, it fell on us. Um, And by that, I mean the following. Our conclusion was that capitalism had triumphed over communism in in 1989. And that, that was actually dead wrong. The communist regimes collapsed under their own dead weight significantly because they were out of balance. There was also pressure from the West, but they were out of balance in the sense that so much of the power of those countries was in the, was in the public sector. Um, and by believing that capitalism had triumphed, we're go- we've been going out of balance ever since on the side of the private sector. We've been putting down government, uh, you know, weakening civil society, and, and just strengthening the, the private sector. Globalization, in a way, is, is, is international corporations with a lot of room to maneuver and almost no regulation or control over them. The years leading up from World War II to 1989, particularly in the United States, but in many countries, were, were years of balance. If you remember the welfare programs in the United States, and you remember all kinds of things that were going on, the, uh, the high tax rates and so on, Wealth was much more balanced. The society was much more balanced. Since 89, it's gone out of balance. And, and, and you know, you can try, trace global warming to that. You can trace a lot of the corporate cor- corruption to that. And, and, and the real corporate corruption is legal. It's much worse than the illegal. The illegal can be prosecuted. The legal corruption, and I, I include executive compensation, for example, as an, as an example of, of uh, legal corruption, um, and, and we better wake up before uh, we lose our, our progeny in our planet. We're, we're under risk. It's not only because of global warming, that's a big factor, but it's because of all kinds of things that are infiltrating our own lives and uh, making things worse. You know, if I can add one thing, it wasn't very long ago that democracies were on the increase, America, Americans were chanting, yes, we can, and, and everything was upbeat. And look what's going on now. We've got thugs in presidential palaces. We've got political gridlock in the United States uh, and extreme views uh, creating that gridlock. Uh, uh, we've got all kinds of countries like Russia and so on reverting into the old ways and, uh, and, and, and awful populist movements 
in Venezuela, for example, because um, people are so frustrated. Um, and we'd better wake up. So I wrote a fairly short book. It's about 74 main pages of text um, called Rebalancing Society. And the subtitle is uh, Radical Renewal Beyond Left, Right, and Center. You know, the left and the right, the moderate left and the moderate right have a lot in common right now. Uh, Sarah Palin has said some things that, that not only could I could have put in the book, I did put it in the book because, uh, you know, I'm hardly in her political camp. I'm not I'm probably moderate left, most like most Canadians. But, but um, um, you know, there are things she said about the power of big corporations alongside big government um, that I believe, too. So the notion then behind rebalancing society is that we've gotten extreme, and you certainly do see this in political um, policies all around the world, that we get one extreme left or we get one extreme right, and everybody is kind of devolving away from the center. So the notion in rebalancing is to come back to some sense of balance. How do we do that? Oh, see, that's not in the center. So imagine this. You can't do this on radio, but imagine this. We, We see politics as a straight line. Left, right, and center, right? And if you're not left, you're not right, then you're in the center. Um, I think that's the wrong way to view politics. So let's draw a circle, and let's put um, uh, the public sector on the upper left and the private sector on the upper right and the plural sector at the bottom. So, so the plural sector are all those things that are non-government and non-business. When I talked about Doctors Without Borders before, that's an example. Uh, Harvard the Harvard University is an example. These, they're not owned by investors, and they're not state-owned. And if you think about all the things that fit under that, it's huge. A healthy society balances those three. The, the plural sector is largely a community sector. The public sector is largely a government and control sector and, 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 uh, and protection center and, uh, and the sector, and the, uh, and, and the private sector is largely a market sector. And we need all three, but we need them in balance. Communism was dominated by governments. Capitalism, the way it's practiced today, is dominated by corporations. And, uh, and in Nazi times, you had communities, very like the Taliban or the Nazis or whoever, controlling um, community movements, controlling society. None of those are acceptable because in each case it was one sector controlling. A healthy society balances the three. It's not, it's not a middle ground. It's a different kind of way of seeing politics. So if I'm in uh, the private sector and part of an organization, how do I help ensure that we have an appropriate balance between the public and the plural? Well, the, the, US, the U.S. view is generally that, that this problem will have to be solved in the private sector by corporate social responsibility uh, and by renewed capitalism or caring capitalism, there's all, all these different words. And I think those things contribute, but they won't solve the problem. The problem will only be solved as each of the sectors comes into balance with the other one. So what, what people in business can do, and many of them are doing it, and they're doing wonderful things, um, is, uh, is become much more responsible. Um, and, and by the way, being more responsible just doesn't mean getting green. You know, Walmart is green, but how's it? But it's also paying its workers eight or nine dollars an hour. This is, you know, this is a far worse thing than get, than the fact that, you know, more, more than offsets they're getting green with, uh, with, uh, you know, with their uh, environmental policies. So, so 
you know, I, if, a, if a chief executive comes to me and says, I want to be more socially responsible, you know what my first answer is? Get out of my government. Uh, you have no right to lobby my government. You have no right to use money to lobby my government. Well, of course, what you've got in the U.S. now uh, is huge amounts of money, private money pouring into elections. That decision by the U.S. Supreme Court has, was, has been the greatest uh, uh, destruction of democratic processes in the United States ever. It is destroying American democracy. And, uh, and uh, people have to wake up to that. And business people, likewise, have to wake up to the fact that a lot of the lobbying is dysfunctional because it's, the game is loaded. The people have the money. Win. Right. So, Henry, thank you for being on the show today. I think there are sort of three things that I take away from the show. Um, one is this last notion that we need to have a balance between the private sector, the public sector, and the plural sector. I think that's an interesting idea that is worth further thought. The second thing I love is this notion that we learn our way into strategies, not plan our way into strategies. And the third thing is this notion of putting the emphasis back in the community of an organization, not just in the individual skills of the leader. And communities have an awful lot to do with how we learn our way to strategy. So, Henry, thank you for being with us. Thank you, Wanda. It was a great pleasure for me. All right. Next week, we have Kevin Tyler from Kevin Ketchum Change. The focus will be on communication, particularly what is it that makes for effective communication, and more importantly, what do people want from their manager in terms of communication? Join us then. Thank you again for joining us for Out of the Comfort Zone. Tune in again for another edition with Dr. Wanda Wallace next Friday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time and 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Take charge this week. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.